We're continuing our study of Deuteronomy today. So will you turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We will begin our reading of Deuteronomy chapter 4 at verse 25 and go on through verse 40. After we've read our sermon text here, Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 40, we will then turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter, verses 1 through 12. We begin in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just to set the stage, many of you know this already, the people of Israel have been delivered from the iron furnace of slavery in Egypt. They have, at least not the first generation, but the second generation of those who were delivered have made it through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, and they are now right on the threshold of entering the promised land. And Moses, who is not going into the promised land with them, takes the opportunity east of the Jordan River to preach to them one last time. Beginning at verse 25, he says, When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over, Jordan, to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. (coughs) If you search for him with all your heart and all your soul, when you are in distress, And all these things have come upon you. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire, as you have heard it, and survived? 
Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors? As the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire and you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers... Therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. And now to the Apostles' letter to the Hebrews, chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying as again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience 
inherit the promises. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us not only your word, so that we of every generation through history might know your will and your work, that you have also granted us your spirit. We pray that your spirit then would illumine our minds, that we might understand these things and be able to apply them in ways that are helpful to us and that bring you greater glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we reach the end of Moses' first sermon there on the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan River. Now, it's probably safe to say that uh, preachers generally like to end their sermons on a high note with a positive, upbeat message that leaves people wanting to come back for more. But far more important than whether it's a high note that ends a sermon, far more important than that is the matter of whether it's a true note. Is the message that I've been preaching true? The preacher needs to leave his hearers considering what God actually has done, actually is doing, and actually has pledged himself to do for us. And sometimes that message will put a new spring in your step. You'll leave here lighthearted. Sometimes that same message might take you out of here with a heart heavy for your sin, heavy with a need to turn and repent. But happy or not, if it's the truth, then it's what you need to hear. And it's what this audience needed to hear on the plains of Moab. So, how does Moses drive home this first sermon that he began way back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6. This has been one long, continuous sermon. How does he end it? This sermon that's highlighted their covenant history over the last 40 years, ever since their deliverance. Well, the sermon does end high, doesn't it? It ends on the note of Jehovah's covenant love and faithfulness to the fathers. For his love to them, he remembers us. But as Moses' mind crosses over to the good land ahead of them, a land in which he himself is never going to set foot, He sees, as a prophet of God, he sees a future not uniformly bright for this holy set-apart nation that he's been leading for the past 40 years, the past generation. What Moses sees as he looks ahead prophetically, as he looks ahead past the milk and honey, past the vines and fig trees, past all the comforts of living as a free people 
in a good land. What Moses sees is spiritual cooling and apostasy. And finally, the ruin of the nation of Israel. He sees what, in the later chapters of Deuteronomy, God spells out in greater detail as covenant warnings, what all the rest of the Old Testament actually then plays out on the pages of human history. This morning we have to consider what is, for the careful Christian reader and thinker, what is the most terrifying prospect that could ever face us in this age of gospel grace abounding to sinners. It's the prospect of apostasy, falling away from the living God, the prospect of cooling from spiritual from being spiritually warm and vital to something less than warm, something lukewarm, something that even Christ himself can only spit out. Certainly to the Christian, there is no prospect so utterly horrifying, so completely dark and hopeless as drifting away from the God who made us and made with us an everlasting covenant by grace, and then sealed that covenant with the blood of his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's no overstatement, beloved, that everything that is precious to you, everything in life and death, Now and forever, everything rides on this one foundational issue of resting in our covenant relationship with the living God. The life of your own soul, now and forever. The life and continuance of the church. The life and continuance of nations. He's the one, after all, who raises them up and brings them down. And this is true even of his own beloved Israel, his own chosen city, Jerusalem, where he made his glory dwell. As grew her coolness, her coolness toward Jehovah, her covenant husband, so proportionately grew her fondness for other lovers. Until she discovered afresh in the days of Nebuchadnezzar the old lesson of the covenant, the old truth that our God is a consuming fire. He is a fire that won't spare even his own house, the temple. The temple that David longed to build, that Solomon his son actually did build. Six centuries later, after the destruction of that first temple, again, Israel rebuffs God's overtures of love and grace, now made available to her in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
instead crucifying the Lord of glory. And before that generation had passed away, Rome had left not one stone upon another in Jerusalem. And dear ones, these judgments of God don't happen by random chance. And this is really the point of today's text. It's the main question we need to consider today. Will the luxurious blessings that we enjoy in Christ Jesus, our life in this land of promise that we call the Christian life, will those blessings have the effect of making us flabby and cool and careless in our walk with him? History Old Testament, New Testament, and up to the present day, history demonstrates the gravity of the threat of growing cool and careless. You remember what the Apostle John said in the opening of his gospel, what he said of Jesus Christ, in him was life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not just one item on the menu of life's possibilities. The Lord Jesus Christ is not one good choice among many. He is the menu. He is also the cook, and the kitchen, and the whole establishment all rolled up into one great everlasting banquet. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, and to walk this earth trusting in him is life. I've already mentioned the fate of Jerusalem, a type or foreshadowing of the church in the Old Testament. We could also take the New Testament church in Ephesus, as an example of the danger of growing cool. This church, the first recipient of what is arguably, maybe not if you include the book of Romans, but arguably one of the two fullest, sweetest flowers of gospel exposition the Holy Spirit ever ever committed to writing. This church in Ephesus is today an archaeological site. It's a vast heap of ruins. And it's not hard to explain the sobering truth about this highly privileged church in Ephesus. You know, the Apostle John was pastor of that church in Ephesus. But the sobering truth about this highly privileged church is frightfully clear. Hardly a generation had passed when the Lord Jesus Christ himself, from his throne in heaven, evaluated that church's stewardship of his covenant, the new covenant sealed in his blood. And he who cannot lie begins by saying in Revelation chapter 2, You've done some things right, you Ephesians. And he goes on to list them. 
He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And on he goes. Wonderful things he says about this church in Ephesus. Nevertheless, what a terrible world. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your former love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And today you can still visit the archaeological site. It's in eastern Turkey. The museums there may be of interest to you, but you won't find there in Ephesus a thriving, vibrant church. Sadly, neither will you find a thriving, vibrant church in many of the other places the apostles first preached the good news of the gospel. The gospel passes through a town, and in many instances it bore the fruit of a church, and it tarried for a few years or generations or maybe centuries. And then God snuffs it out. Or else it becomes a lifeless shell, which is essentially the same thing. Why does God snuff out churches? Well, the secret things belong to God, of course, but shouldn't we wonder whether our testimony of God's grace in Christ, a testimony that once was so vital, once was so vibrant, once was so true, that that testimony might have become, through time, something hollow, something unconvincing, something that is maybe even a counterproductive sham before the world that we are charged to win for Christ. We too easily forget our own duties of daily repentance and faith, the very things that Christ commissioned us to teach the world out there. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and Head of the Church, retains the sovereign right as King to remove that lampstand from its place. But then the horror of apostasy is compounded by this biblical teaching that we read in Hebrews chapter 6, that it is impossible to repent of falling away from Christ. Let that sink in. There it is plainly in Hebrews 6 verse 6, the hardest truth of the Bible for me to get my head around. And there are lots of hard things the Bible teaches us. To me, this is one of, the, one of the very hardest. Now, very few things in the Bible, indeed, are described as impossible. On the contrary, we are taught explicitly 
that all things shall be, shall be impossible. I'm sorry. All things shall be possible with God. Nothing shall be impossible. That's the general rule. So then if something is singled out and labeled as impossible, certainly that calls for a closer look because it's exceptional. There are a few things that are impossible that the scripture teaches us. For instance, it's impossible for God to lie because that would be for him to deny himself, which is another impossibility. I want you to understand the impossibilities of Scripture this way, that the impossibilities that I've just mentioned are the bedrock upon which our hope as Christians rests. Or to change the metaphor slightly, the faithfulness of God to his own word is the downy pillow on which the dying Christian can safely rest his or her head. That God has made promises to me in the gospel. And he cannot lie. That's the beginning and the end of all of our comfort as Christians. That God who has spoken these promises cannot lie. But this spur in our sides today and for as long as we live is also one of those propositions that is framed as an impossibility. Don't turn away from Jesus Christ because if you do, it's impossible to renew you again to repentance. The cross covers our sins. It drowns them in a sea of God's forgetfulness but only the sins of those who abide in Christ. While we, the branches, abide in Christ, our vine, repentance and faith is, as it were, the sap that is continually running through us. He, the vine, supplies us with the living faith that returns then from us to him in daily repentance. Daily repentance of sin. That's the connectivity. That's the vital connection between vine and branches. But branches cut off. What life do they have? When we trample underfoot the blood of the only Savior, when we've actually tasted the good word of God, and tasted of the powers of the age to come, when we've then spat it all out and decided it's not for us. Apostasy is forever. And it'll be sealed one dark day with the king's words, depart from me. I never knew you. Beloved, this is dreadful doctrine, and it's dreadful not because it's false, but because it's true. Branches lopped off become fuel for the fire. 
So our task today isn't to describe an imagined cure for apostasy from Jesus Christ, but by God's grace to prevent its ever happening among us. Prevention is the answer to church dryness, to church coolness, and decline and death. If anyone in the Bible should understand the solid old Calvinist doctrine of the saints' perseverance, if anyone should understand it, it's Peter. The Apostle Peter, who himself denied the Lord three times. And he's the one who warns us in his second letter, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Be certain. On the plain of Moab, Moses warns Israel of this very danger. Verses 25 to 28 describe this coming decay. When a few generations have passed, he says, and you've grown old in the good land. More literally, what he says is, when you've grown sleepy or drowsy or droopy, when you get that way in the good land, then this is what you can expect to happen. You'll grow accustomed to the milk and the honey and the grapes and the pomegranates. You will grow accustomed to the idea of national sovereignty and settlement in a land that you begin to imagine is your very own, your unalienable right. You'll set up a kingdom for yourself with all the trappings of a kingdom to look like all the other kingdoms of the world. You'll grow slack in your divine commission to be an evangelical light to the nations, the Gentiles. You'll actually begin to imagine that you have the leisure to live for yourself. The leisure for philosophical and religious speculation and the visual arts based on such speculation. Your appetite for God's revealed truth is going to grow dull and your appetite for the sensuous keen. And your business contact with all the nations of the world are going to present you with all these pretty carved stones and stumps of wood whom those nations call their gods. you'll be measuring out your own rope. Well, the eye of the prophet is seldom dry, of course, and we can imagine Moses' heart breaking as he contemplates the disaster that lay ahead for Israel. He knows her heart isn't changed just because she's been under the chastening hand of the Lord for the last 40 years. He knows it hasn't changed. He doesn't say if this happens, but when it happens. When you're fat and happy. When you're old and drowsy in all of the blessings of the covenant. Then you'll grow cool 
and carnal and careless. But God isn't mocked. In verse 26, he calls all of creation to testify as witnesses against the apostate people. Heaven and earth simply can't believe their eyes when they see God's own church turning aside from their glorious maker and redeemer and friend. And to turn away from all of that rich inheritance to fashion for themselves lifeless stumps and stones and turn them into objects of worship. Is there anything so incredible as this? Angels long to look into the salvation that God lavishes by grace on his church. All of creation groans to participate in this redemption and Israel tramples it underfoot. But not without consequences. The covenant demands consequences as water runs downhill. So Israel is here given to understand, even at this very early date, they're given to understand that the fruit of her independent thinking, that is perhaps so sweet for a fleeting moment of self-assertion, that's going to leave a very bitter aftertaste. Every form of idolatry bites back before it's done with us. First it intoxicates, taking away your judgment, and then it kills. The independent thinking of man-made religion is, in fact, the soul's deadly poison. It leads a man or a church or a nation to slide quickly from the orthodox to the unorthodox to the outright irreligious to the absolutely irrational. Because we're in charge, or so we imagine. We can do as we please. I am the master of my destiny. I am the captain of my soul. And when one abomination fails to satisfy us, we invent another, and then we invent another and another after that. And lives are wasted. Lives are wasted dishonoring God, calling him a liar, forfeiting covenant blessing, and wasting precious gospel opportunity among the nations for whose gospel proclamation we were called in the first place. But the downward spiral has its limits because God is God. Our God is a consuming fire to vindicate his honor among the nations so deprived of Israel's gospel. God, as promised, first scatters her among the nations, those very nations, and then he humiliates her with her own idiocy. This pathetic groveling before carved stock and stone. These are Moses' words. There, that is, when he's driven you out of the good land, there you will serve God's, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. 
those who make them become like them. We sang that this morning in the 115th Psalm. Those who make them become like them, dumb and finally dead. Apostasy and its results are forever. Spurning once and for all God's covenant with the house of David and the blood of that covenant, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel were going to vanish virtually without a trace. Vanish from the face of the earth. But thanks be to God, his covenant mercy lasts forever. He spares from apostasy and ruin a remnant for the sake of David. He spares Judah and little David and and little Benjamin, those two tribes. But these tribes too, in time, grow proud and careless in their mission among the nations. They too fall away. And Nebuchadnezzar, the rod of God's anger, carries them into exile to the willows by Babylon's streams, where they wept and remembered all that they had lost, all that they have forfeited. Zion. They lost it. But thanks be to God, his covenant mercy lasts Forever, 70 years later, a remnant returns and rebuilds the ruined city in the days of Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, Ezra and Nehemiah. Idolatry is conquered once and for all, or so it might seem. But it's not. Idolatry just assumes a new and more sophisticated form after the exile. By the return from Babylon, Babylonian exile, beginning about 539 B.C., gone are all the gross images and carvings from Israel's worship, but here in their place arises the next generation of spiritual scandal. The esteemed scribes, the lawyers, the rabbis, the learned men and their impressive sounding books to cloud and condition and castrate the scriptures. And once again, God's people find themselves in bondage to man-made religion. Once again, men and women and children are driven away from the Lord their God, even by those worthless shepherds with the heavenly responsibility to bring them in. The scribes drive them away. But thanks be to God, his covenant mercy lasts forever. There is one final remnant who hasn't turned from Jehovah, his God. There is one last true man, one last true Israelite 
who can truly say with a song in his faithful heart, to do thy will, I take delight, O thou my God that art, because that holy law of thine is deep within my heart. The last faithful remnant of Israel with the courage to meet the fashionable idolatry of his own age and tell its perpetrators the bald truth about themselves. You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the last faithful remnant of Israel when everyone else had fallen away from the living God. He is the first keeper of the covenant. He is the last keeper of the covenant. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the only one, in other words. He is the only one. True Israel, Prince of God, incarnate. And here he stands when all those around him fall. He prays as our high priest and mediator when all others grow drowsy. And he sheds his blood at the cross, the just for the unjust, satisfying for all time the justice and the holy wrath of God. Well, all of this, of course, was well down the pike for Israel as they were gathered there on the plains of Moab. But young as they were and new as they were to their mission among the nations, these things we've been talking about are lessons best learned early. Oh, the trouble we spare ourselves when we learn these lessons early. When we sin as we will and God visits us as he will in chastening judgment from that deep humiliation, let us seek his face. In the depth of your distress, distress perhaps that you brought on yourself, from the depth of your distress, turn to the Lord. Obey his voice. Why should the ruined sinner die in his pride? Why should she be hardened in her sin? Why fall away from the living God in this age of grace, abounding towards sinners like ourselves? As Moses wraps up this first sermon on the plain of Moab, he builds, as any good preacher will do, He builds to the one great point that he wants the people to remember. Remember your history, he says, as the covenant people of God. But in your remembering, remember this above all. That it hasn't been about us and our doing and our striving. It hasn't been about even our failures to do what we should do. This unfolding of history has been and is about 
God's love to the fathers. His faithfulness to the covenant he made with them. Did any other people in history ever have and enjoy such privilege? Did any other people under heaven ever hear such a voice, ever see such a fire, ever know such a redemption? To you it was shown, he says, to that generation gathered there. To you it was shown that you might obey. To you it was shown that obeying it might go well with you and your children. But it's not principally about you and it's not principally about them. We're merely the beneficiaries of this grace abounding. To you it was shown that you might know and consider in your heart the one who is the engine of lifelong devotion, lifelong assurance, and lifelong blessing. That the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you the folly of our idolatry. All of the things and ideas and sparkly objects of one kind or another that we pursue in life. We ask, O Lord, that you would grant us speedy repentance of these things and that you would assume your rightful place in our lives and that we would assume our rightful place under your law and sovereignty. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our King. Thank you that as King, he has conquered us. He has subdued and is subduing all of his enemies and ours. Thank you that as our priest, he is mediating for us. Thank you that as our prophet, he is showing us the way. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless us, that you would draw us ever closer by these means of grace, closer to our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might, as the Apostle John did so long ago, that last night before the cross, that we too might lean our heads upon his breast, and find in him that peace with God and with men and with our own souls, that we might find that peace that passes understanding. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.